The Gist is sponsored by Goldman Sachs. Information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 27th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Kansas, they are worried. They're worried that Guantanamo detainees might be transferred to Fort Leavenworth Prison, where military prisoners like Chelsea Manning and Nadal Hassan are imprisoned. How worried? Well, their senior senator, Pat Roberts, raised a particular concern, as explained by NPR's David Wilna. GOP Senator Pat Roberts worries terrorists could travel under the Missouri River to invade the Supermax. What? He's worried about a submarine breakout. Does he know the leader of al-Qaeda is Ayman al-Zwahiri, not Lex Luthor? He does? In fact, he does. Because a few days ago, Roberts wrote to Defense Secretary Ashton Carter saying, Fort Leavenworth is neither the ideal nor right location for moving Guantanamo detainees. The installation lies right on the Missouri River, providing terrorists with the possibility of covert travel underwater and attempting access to the detention facility. Right. Because if Al-Qaeda or ISIS has a submarine, they're definitely going to plumb the depths of the Missouri River and not, say, Guantanamo Bay on the island of Cuba in the Caribbean Sea. In a later op-ed to the Wall Street Journal, Senator Roberts backed off the submarine scenario. He laid out a fuller case against Fort Leavenworth. He said, Fort Leavenworth is on the Missouri River, adjacent to a public railroad about 16 miles from Kansas City International Airport. Now, as a resident of New York City, a city which experienced a terrorist attack in 1993, a city which detained the mastermind of that attack, tried the mastermind of that attack, shipped the mastermind of that attack off to a supermax, who experienced more terrorist attacks years later, maybe you heard of them, yet continued to detain and try terrorists. As a resident of New York City, let me just say, get over yourself, Kansas. True, true, New York doesn't boast anything quite akin to Kansas City International Airport, now featuring, literally, I looked this up, one regular international flight to Toronto, four seasonal charters to Cancun and other parts of Mexico. Senator Roberts, we have to ask, are you at long last, sir? Are you a Frady cat? There, I said it. He's a goddamn Frady cat. Senator Roberts went on to add, Quote, Fort Leavenworth trains the best and brightest troops throughout the U.S. Army at the Command and General Staff College. Everyone in the vicinity would live with a target on their back if some of the most dangerous terrorists in the world were housed among them. Yes, the soldiers would have a target on their back. I wonder what else could make soldiers have a target on their back. We've got to protect the soldiers from submersibles. What is this, like Pokemon or Rochambeau? Does Bathysphere beat Army Man? We've got to protect the vulnerable soldiers who might be attacked. You know, we never anticipated an attack when we built Fort Leavenworth. Freaking Frady Cat. But you know what? All day today, I'm going to stay with the Sunflower State. This will be an all-Sunflower State show. I will spiel about what's the matter with Kansas. But first, a son of the plains goes back to dissect a great political experiment so successful 
that its backers would really not like you to call it an experiment at all. That unfairly suggests it a little too much to the unforgiving dichotomy of the past fail. Here now, Chris Solentrop, The Kansas Experiment. In 2010, Sam Brownback was elected governor of Kansas on a promise of reducing government, establishing an office of the repealer to decrease business regulation, eliminating state business and income taxes. Just in general, as he told the Wall Street Journal, quote, my focus is to create a red state model that allows the Republican ticket to say, see, we've got a different way and it works. Well, his agenda mostly passed, but the initiatives did not spur economic growth. And by 2015, the state faced a $400 million budget shortfall. And journalist Chris Sullentrop sensed an opportunity. He grew up in Kansas. He was a political journalist for years, including for a long time at Slate. Now he mostly writes about video games. But Chris was fascinated with Kansas, especially because his uncle Gene was a state senator who firmly believed in Brownback's agenda. So Chris went back to his home state, seeking to understand Brownback's backers as something other than monsters or morons, in his words. The article is titled Marching to Zero. It's a reference to the goal of zero income taxes. Chris, hello. How are you? Hello. Who's your Uncle Gene? My Uncle Gene is a conservative state legislator in Kansas. He is the vice chair of the House Tax Committee and a member of the Appropriations Committee and an ally of Governor Sam Brownback. And he does the worm at weddings? He did. He's 63 now. My sister is getting married on Saturday, uh, and he told me he will not be doing the worm, uh, but he is looking forward to seeing me. So you went to Kansas in the beginning, their entire legislative session last three months. You were there at the beginning of this year. What was the agenda? What was going on in Topeka for you to cover? The two big questions at the outset, uh, beyond this third question, which was, can Kansas pay its bills, were, can Sam Brownback and my uncle and their allies preserve the March to Zero, which is the march to eliminate income taxes in Kansas, and as a sort of corollary to that, could they preserve the zero tax policy uh, that is already in existence for 330,000 businesses and farms in the state? You know, there's a lot of debate about the economic effects of the policy. There's certainly a lot of debate about the effects on the, uh, the, the revenue numbers in Kansas. I didn't hear a lot of talk from anyone, really, that they thought this was going to increase revenues in Kansas. Now, maybe that's sort of after-the-fact explaining, because there certainly were people when Arthur Laffer, the Reagan-era economist and godfather of supply-side economics, went out and helped Sam Brownback design this tax cut. There certainly were people who promised that it would bring, you know, an economic boom and thus an increase in, in revenues uh, to the government. But most people in 2015 were saying, look, you can't cut taxes without being committed to reducing the size of government, and that it's a, uh, you know, that cutting taxes is just part of the attempt to reduce the size of government and that you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, I'm going to cut taxes and also run you know, a large bureaucracy, which, of course, the Topeka government is not a large bureaucracy. But, you know, and I think there's a, a sincere divide within the conservatives in Kansas about whether this is working and whether they should continue it. They decided to keep going so far, but they, they feel like people are leaving the state. The state's not growing the way they want it to be growing. 
they want to attract new businesses. They want to say, this is a business-friendly state. This is a low-tax state. Come to Kansas. Use the Google Fiber in Kansas City on the Kansas side of the border. Set up a startup, and you will uh, you know, reap the benefits. You know, Brownback always sold this as a great experiment. And actually, I think he was right. It's just that the results of the experiment seem to me and maybe have been portrayed by Twitter shamers, but maybe by objective observers. The results of the experiment seem to indicate that it was a failed experiment, that the idea of massive tax cuts and zeroing out income taxes and therefore having lower government services don't work economically and isn't popular. Does he just say, give it time? Is that his only answer to that? Yeah, their basic answer is give it time, plus we're seeing private sector job growth. We never said we were going to grow the government. We're not talking about public revenues or public jobs. But I think, I guess I would say, I think his critics would say, okay, the states are the laboratories of democracy, but then don't we have to look at the results of the experiment and then... You know, if we're not if we're not seeing the results we want to, shouldn't we try something different? Is there a concern within the, you know, the Republican Party purged as it is of moderates? Is there a concern for the most vulnerable of society? Is there a concern for the people who really do need government for, you know, if you have a philosophy of sink or swim, some's going to swim. Is there just less, you know, empathy or sympathy for those people? Or, you know, do the people who propose these tax cuts not believe that people will swim, all people will swim? What's the thought about that? No, there definitely is a concern for the least of these. I mean, a couple things. One, I would say that One of the interesting things about Kansas is that while nationally Sam Brownback is sort of as far to the right as you could possibly imagine someone being, within his coalition in Topeka, he's close to the middle of that coalition. The Speaker of the House wanted to cut government more significantly than Brownback did this year. There were 18 to 19 people who voted against that Speaker from the right uh, at the outset of the session, and there were certainly people in that coalition who said, we can just cut $400 million from the state budget. We should not raise taxes. We said we never would. There's more to find here. But the center-right part of the coalition really felt that they had hit bottom, that they had, as a part-time legislature that works basically 90 days out of the year, that after five years of cutting, that they couldn't really find anything more to cut without doing substantial, if not irreparable, damage to schools and hospitals and prisons and roads and all the other things that uh, state government funds. And so they decided to raise taxes. Uh, And they decided to raise taxes because, you know, as Marvin Kleb, who was the House tax chairman, said in a speech, you know, are we really going to cut more? It sounded like a liberal stem winder. Are we really going to cut more uh, from our elderly, from our poorest, from our schools? And that's what enabled them to get, you know, by the skin of their teeth, the 63 votes they needed uh, to raise sales taxes. What does the Kansas experiment, I'll use the E word, and Sam Brownback's tenure say for other states that are trending Republican and flirting with those kind of policies? Well, you know, 24 states have Republican governors, Republican houses, and Republican senates, if you count Nebraska, which has a technically nonpartisan unicameral legislature, but which is in all for all intents and purposes, Republican. Mm-hmm. So this is a big swath of America, and I just think sometimes uh, in a universe in which 
you know, the media capitals are Washington, D.C. and California and New York City, uh, which are, you know, democratically controlled places, and it's certainly a tight 50-50 electorate and on the presidential level, if not a slight tilt for the Democrats. But you, we, we treat these people like they're exotic foreigners. People have said that the Kansas experiment is radical. I just don't know that I agree with that word. Certainly bold and ambitious, maybe even quixotic, but I just don't know if it's radical to want your tax policy to be the same as Florida's. Right. So that's the politics. I want to get into the personal. You know, if one of your briefs was to uh, show that these people making these decisions weren't monsters or morons, I think you succeeded. I actually have always thought that Sam Brownback might be a nice person, but that kind of doesn't matter at a certain point. And I didn't come away with thinking that, sure, they weren't morons, but I did come away thinking they were wrong. And sure, they weren't monsters, but I did come away thinking, sure, their policies hurt people. So yeah, is that is that advancement? Have you advanced the narrative? I think it is. I mean, yeah. I have two conflicting thoughts here. I mean, one is that you're right. I'm opposed to what I've called the good man theory of history, you know, that we should celebrate, uh, you know, past presidents, you know, that John Adams was a great president because he loved his wife yeah. and not a terrible president because he passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. You know, I'm, I'm just against that, uh, you know, that we should judge JFK and LBJ on their personal lives and not their public achievements. So, so sure, fair enough. But the second thing, though, is I didn't write this story to persuade you of the merits of Sam Brownback's agenda or Gene Solentrop's agenda. I just wanted to explain it to people. And I certainly think that people can pour their own meaning into it. Uh, I wrote it with what I hoped was a minimum of judgment about what they were doing, uh, and merely I wanted to get to them up close and demonstrate to people why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah. And so finally, what did Uncle Gene think of the story? He liked it. Uh, he, the one thing he asked me to keep out is the thing you mentioned at the beginning, which was the worm. <laughs> no, uh, no. You, journalistically, we need that. Literally, without that, that sentence humanized him more than anything in the whole in the whole deal so that's what i told him i said it's designed to humanize you not humiliate you uh it's designed to sort of set you up as a person and then say that liberals might treat you unfairly and then sort of try to explain your point of view and he said okay you know what you're doing uh you know why people would be interested in this but that is the one piece of information that he asked me to take out uh you know he didn't read the story but it was fact-checked uh, and so he knew that would be in there because they had to ask him if he knew how to do the worm. This is the job of a New York Times Magazine fact checker. <laughs> you know, so he, but he liked the story. I think they, they want to advertise Kansas to businesses as a, place, as, as a place that is pursuing this policy. And in my experience, no matter what other people might think of people's opinions, if you render their thoughts and ideas accurately and fairly, they appreciate it. I mean, no one likes every word that's written about them in a story, uh, but time and time again, someone will say something that you disagree with, and you'll be a little nervous telling them, you know, that you're going to write this up, and they'll just say, well, yeah, that's what I think. Chris Solentrop wrote about the Kansas legislature for the New York Times Magazine in an article called Marching to Zero. He is, in my opinion, in the top five or six political writers ever to write for Slate. And you might know him from his video game blog and podcast, Shall We Play a Game? Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. 
I am pleased to announce for the first time ever on this podcast, The Gist Live, our first ever live show. It's in Brooklyn at the Bell House. It's on September 29th. Now, it's not just going to be a live version of the show we do. It will be a cornucopia. It will be pandemonium. It will be a carnival-type atmosphere. We're going to have Matthew Dix telling a story. We're going to have Adam Davidson talking about economics. We're going to be talking about music with Chris Malamphy. Maria Konnikova will be there to play Is That Bullshit with your questions. We'll have a cocktail guy, Chris Wirtz. He'll be making drinks for you, plus a special musical guest. It's not Bruce Springsteen, but it's a very special musical guest. So again, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you get early ticket access and 30% off. That will end the early access, ends 2 p.m. on Friday. Then everyone, go to slate.com slash NYC gist and meet me in Brooklyn on September 29th. Slate.com slash gist NYC. I'm looking forward to it. And now the spiel getting me mine. A little over a decade ago, journalist and critic Thomas Frank wrote one of those zeitgeisty political books. It was called What's the Matter with Kansas? Snappy title. There was a snappy subtitle, How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. There was even a really good graphic on the cover. It was an elephant balancing on one leg on the back of a donkey. The thesis was that blue-collared Kansans, those traditional prairie populists, farmers who once marched against the money power, had been won over by conservatives because of social issues. And therefore, Kansans were selling out their economic self-interest because they were being hoodwinked by moralists. There is a lot right about the analysis, not just for Kansas, but for everyone. There's also a lot wrong. The right was that the trend was real. The wrong was that it's a little condescending to say that people are mistakenly placing their prayer books over their pocketbooks. Maybe they knew the choice they were making. I mean, if you were an abolitionist in 1850, you might be voting against self-interest to oppose slavery, but you were going to oppose slavery. But there's another aspect to this morality versus economic self-interest argument that I personally have been thinking a lot about. As an almost upper class, self-defined moderate, man, liberal in the eyes of many conservatives, not liberal enough in the eyes of Occupy Wall Street. Anyway, that's who I think I am. I think I do the same thing. I think that I vote against economic self-interest because of morality. At the very upper reaches, the wealthy will say this sort of thing, they'll level with you. I've heard Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Bill Clinton all doing a version of that saying, hey, I support progressive taxation, even though it's against my self-interest, or I favor Obama's tax plan, not George Bush's, even though it hurts me in my pocketbook, those guys will say. And that's good rhetoric because the listener will think, oh, I'm being leveled with. And it also bolsters the status of, you know, Clinton or Buffett or Gates. It also subtly degrades opponents who by implication are speaking out of economic self-interest. Let's go on to my mayor, Bill de Blasio. I think de Blasio is an okay mayor. I don't know that he's the smoothest political operator, but it's a tough environment. But when I look at his policies, I have to conclude they're not really meant for people like me, for people in the middle class, New York City's actual literal middle class. The last mayor, Bloomberg, it was great for the middle class. He built up common areas like the coastline, he saved a lot of money for a rainy day fund, not sexy, really, really important. He was really good on the environment. That's a real middle class issue. It helps the rich and the poor alike. De Blasio spends most of his energies trying to help poorer people. The $15 minimum wage, reforming stop and frisk building affordable housing. The one big thing he did that helped the middle class, universal pre-K, I happened to miss that. My kids were too old, cost me thousands. 
I support helping the poor for two reasons. One, there's a good argument that helping the poor helps the middle class, right? The lack of a huge disparity in wealth. It's good for crime. It's good for livability. It's good for general harmony. But mostly I support these initiatives because like those deluded Kansans of the Thomas Frank book, because of my sense of morality. Let's go through these issues important to the Democratic Party. Gay marriage. I'm not gay, but I think legal gay marriage is right. Why? Because of morality. Obamacare. I have health insurance. I'm fine, but I feel really bad for people who don't. Over-policing. I've had, I don't know, 95% positive interactions with police, but I empathize with young black men who did nothing wrong yet are constantly harassed. I'm also very glad that so many of New York's once crime-ridden areas are really, really peaceful now. But I don't accept that a boot on the neck is the only way to achieve that peacefulness. Let's take immigration reform. I'm not an immigrant, but I appreciate the contributions of immigrants, not because it helps me, though it might, but because I root for underdogs and because my family story is pretty much like the story of the immigrants a century removed. My point is that my mayor, the National Democratic Party, in fact, really isn't operating in my self-interest. Yeah, I do think there are a lot of GOP policies that would be disastrous for everyone. I think there are a few Democratic policies that would be also. But, you know, if something like the Paul Ryan plan were put in place, it would create a world of more winners and losers. I think that most of the educated white people I know would be among the winners. But I don't want a world of winners and losers. Not because I fear where I'd wind up, but because I fear where other people or people I don't even know would wind up. My general sense of civic obligation. That's morality, isn't it? That's empathy. It's at least sympathy. Sympathy can work too. We degrade sympathy. Sympathy is okay. So what's the matter with Kansas, or at least the subtitle, How Conservatives Won the Hearts of America? It might be the right diagnosis, but I think it offered the wrong treatment, focusing as it did on appeals to economic interest. I say win back the heart of America, and then the brain will follow. It will take courage, but if all three can be awoken, Americans might find, to quote a famous Kansan, there is no place like home. And that's it for today's show. I want to plug once again my live show, September 29th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Go to slate.com slash NYC just for all the info on that. Andrea Salenzi fears catapults will interrupt her job as producer of The Gist. Joel Meyer is The Gist's managing producer. This is his pre-anti-penultimate day in that job. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, wears tar-resistant visors when traversing a parapet for fear of boiling cauldrons. The gist. Don't fear the reaper. Fear the scythe. Right? We're always talking about the reaper. What about the scythe? Scythes kill. They kill more people each year than, I don't know, I don't have the stats in front of me, than koosh balls or pipe cleaners or something. The, and, and, and of course, the only thing that cures a grim reaper with a scythe is a grimmer reaper with a greater in size scythe. We must all nurture the scythe inside. This is my point today. Watch out for the scythe. Thanks for listening. Food isn't just something you put in your mouth. On the Burnt Toast podcast, Amanda Hesser, Meryl Stubbs, and editor Kenzie Wilbur dig into the culture of food. You may pick up a recipe or two along the way, but this is a show about how food fits into our lives. Check out Burnt Toast from Food 52 wherever you find your podcasts.